Well, good morning, guys. Uh, that was an appropriate introduction. However cool and big and smart you guys are, we are less. And uh, I'm just honored and humbled to be here with you guys this morning. Um, before we begin today, I just want to kind of piggyback on what Brandon said. I don't know any of you. Um, literally, I don't know any of you. I met some of you guys this morning. Um, but I kind of feel like, like the Apostle Paul when he wrote to the Romans, who he had never met. And he calls them beloved brothers and sisters because they have Christ in common. And that's what we have here together. We have Christ in common. What else do we need? And so we are, well, I hope you think I'm beloved, but I, I really, I feel a love for you guys in Christ because we have that together. We are his family, and more than that, we are brothers and sisters together. So, if you would, let's pray. We'll open the word together. Father God, <clears throat> I thank you for this opportunity to speak to my brothers and sisters in Christ. Lord, I ask that this morning as we open your word, that you would teach us, that you would challenge us, that by your spirit you would change us, that you would make us more like Christ for those of us who know him and for those of us who don't know him. Lord, I ask that you would pour out the spirit to convict, to challenge, to show us, all of us, our need for a savior. But this morning as we talk about idols and idolatry, let us be open to what your word has to say. Lord, let us be open to the conviction of the Spirit. Lord, let us not buck back against what you might be doing in our lives, but let us be open to accept your word this morning. Lord, help me as I preach to say what's true and helpful and encouraging. I ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, if you go with me to Judges chapter 6, that's we're going to be today, Judges 6. Judges 6.25 in particular. At our church, we've been going through the book of Judges, just story by story by story. And when I, when I opened up Judges for the first time, I thought, you know, this is going to be... I had a different plan. I thought, you know, oh, we'll talk about some of these heroes from the Old Testament and how they followed God, and it'll be great. And I realized that in the book of Judges, everybody sucks, everybody's a failure, every single story is a tragic one, except for maybe this one, there's maybe a few others. And this is the story of Gideon. And not the story of Gideon, maybe you know from Sunday school or from kids' church or whatever, where Gideon um, uses the fleece, right? That was a bad story. Like, that's not, don't do that. Um, but there's another story where Gideon, God pairs his army down from 33,000 down to 300 and still conquers Midian. And we look at Gideon, we're like, yes, faith hero. But then he goes on to fail horribly and crowns himself the king of Israel and builds more idols. But this first story, or really the second story in Gideon's, Gideon's uh, his ark, is this one about Gideon tearing down the idols. So God comes to him in Ophrah, which is the town that he was from, and he tells him, basically, hey, it's me, God. And Gideon's like, now hold on, really? And so he tests God, and, and God proves to him, it is me, I am the Lord, and he tells him, I'm going to empower you to go and beat the Midianites who have come in to invade Israel. And so Gideon is probably excited in some way. And then God tells him this, verse 25. That night the Lord said to him, Take your father's bull and the second bull, seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal that your father has, and cut down the Asherah that is beside it. Now, I want you to understand that Baal was this false god. He was 
considered to be one of the higher false gods of the Canaanites, which Canaan was the land that they had come into to possess that God had given to them, the Israelites. Now, Asherah was considered to be one of his wives, one of the, the wives of this false god, who was also supposed to be a god. And she was one of the, the wives that would, when they would get together, the seasons would change. And so they put up this altar to Baal, and then they had this pole for Asherah, which was probably like seven feet tall, and it might have been like a carved idol, or it might have just been like a decorated pole. But the point is that it represented this false goddess. And so God says, tear down the altar of Baal, take a bull, because it was a big, big deal, pull it down, and then cut down that pole. And then, he says, build an altar to the Lord your God on the top of the stronghold here. So he's building the highest place with stones laid in due order. And then take the second bull and offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah that you shall cut down. Which is kind of a baller move, right? He says, not only are you going to cut down this false goddess, I want you to build me an altar and offer this bull on the wood from the false god you cut down. This is going to be a sign for all the people that we are done with idols. So verse 27, So Gideon took ten men of his servants and did as the Lord had told him. But because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, he did it by night. So he waits till nightfall, takes some servants. Because like I said, this altar to Baal was probably a big thing. He needed bulls, he needed servants to pull this thing down. He does it in the middle of the night because he's afraid of the town, or the men of the town and of his family. And we're going to find out why. Verse 28, when the men of the town rose early in the morning, behold, the altar of Baal was broken down. The Asherah beside it was cut down. The second bull was offered on the altar that had been built. And they said to one another, who has done this thing? And after they had searched and inquired, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash has done this thing. Then the men of the town, they go, I guess they go to Gideon's house, and they said to Joash, his dad, bring out your son that he may die, for he's broken down the altar of Baal and cut down the Asherah beside it. But Joash said to all who stood against him, will you contend for Baal? Or will you save him? Whoever contends for him shall be put to death by morning. So in other words, these guys come and say, we're going to kill Gideon. He tore down the idol. Like, he's got to die. And his dad says, well, look, hold on. Hold on. You're going to fight for Baal? Right? If you kill my son, you're going to be put to death by morning because I mean, it's a capital offense. You can't just go around murdering people. And then he gives them this. He says, whoever, excuse me, if he's a god, let him contend for himself because his altar has been broken down. So he throws down this challenge to Baal. And then verse 32, Therefore on that day, Gideon was called Jerubbabel. That is to say, let Baal contend against him, because he broke down his altar. And you're sitting here thinking, like, who is this guy, and what is this story? Uh, but I want to I encourage you with a couple of things this morning. Maybe challenge you with a couple of things. There are two huge lessons I think we see. And here's the first one. Here's the first one. In your notes, if you're taking notes, Idols have no place in the lives of God's people. Idols have no place in the lives of God's people. God told Gideon, basically, step one of rescuing my people from Midian is going to be to bring spiritual renewal. I want you to cut down the idols, and we're going to start over. Build a new altar on the highest place to your God, the Lord. And God doesn't say, just build me an altar beside the false gods. He said, you need to tear them down. 
And in fact, you're going to use the wood from the Asherah to make a sacrifice to me. Because God doesn't do this thing where we set him up beside other false gods. That's not acceptable. So if Gideon had just gotten up, built an altar to God next to the Baal and the Asherah, he would have still been in sin, and the whole place would have still been in sin. Because God says, there is no one like me. I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my promise to carved idols. My praise, excuse me, to carved idols. That's Isaiah 42.8. And really, this is so basic, right? This is, this is like God worship 101. The first, or the second commandment, right? You shall have no other gods before me. That's the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me, Exodus 20, verse 3. And that before here doesn't mean that you don't have any other gods in line before God. It means you don't have any gods in God's presence, period. No gods before me. Because remember, they would worship God in the temple. And, and they had the veil and all this, this ceremony to, to hide God from their sinfulness. And he says, when you build this holiest place for me, do not put any other gods in my presence. How dare you? And then commandment number two, Exodus 20, verse 4 through 6, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. So that the second commandment now adds a little more detail to the first. It basically says, don't worship art that you've made. And second, that the worship of idols is a sign that you hate God. That's what he says here. That if you worship idols, you hate me. So, what did the people do? Well, they built idols. Romans 1, 21 through 23 Apostle Paul gives this sort of indictment on them. For although they knew God, they didn't honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So humanity as a whole, including the Israelites, has this, we have this propensity, like we want to make idols. We love Idols. It's just in our hearts. John Calvin says that the heart, the human heart is a factory of idols. Like almost as soon as we can cut one down, it's like another one just pops out. That it's in us to worship idols. But because it is so very serious, we see that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against that. That it's, it's unacceptable in God's sight. Alright, so here's the question that we have to ask then. Why does God get to demand our worship? What is it about God, or why is He the one that gets to tell us that He's number one, right? That seems kind of arrogant. Like, if I come to you and I say, hey, I'm the best preacher in the world, you better only listen to me. I don't get to say that. But what is it about God that He gets to demand our worship? Well, here's the answer. If you're taking notes, again, this is in your, in your notes. Because of who God is, He deserves all of our worship. Because of who God is, He deserves all of our worship. God is the best and the greatest and the only perfect one. Psalm 1830 says this, This God, His way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in Him. Everything God does is right. Everything God does is perfect. 
It is not arrogant for God to command worship because He is the best thing that exists. He's the only one that actually deserves to be worshipped. And so when God says, worship me only, really that is a sign of kindness to say, hey, just in case you were wondering, I am the one that you should be worshipping. These false idols, get rid of that stuff. They're not worthy. I am. I'm the Lord. Right? And when we worship something else or anything else, we're wrong in two ways. We're factually wrong and we're morally wrong. We're factually wrong because when we worship something that's not God, we're just saying this thing is God and it's not. Right? Like if, um, if you're making soup and you say, well, I'm out of salt, but I have Kool-Aid. No, that's factually wrong. Don't put Kool-Aid in your soup. <laughs> it's also morally wrong because we're letting something or someone else that isn't God have the glory that only God deserves. Right? So not, not only are we, are we misrepresenting God, but we're giving what deserves to Him to somebody else. We're stealing His worship. False gods always steal some aspect of God's glory for themselves. Right? Genesis 1.1, the one that we all know. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But Baal was worshipped as a creator. Right? That was who they thought he was, this false god Baal, as the one who arranged and established all nature so that when the people worshipped him, they stole God's glory of creation and handed it to Baal. Or Asherah. Right? I said she was the god, or she, she, she was the wife of, the, of Baal, one of the goddesses, the goddess of the sea. And the Canaanites thought she brought the harvest and the fertility and the, all that stuff. And so they were taking what God says, I bring the harvest. I give you children. And they said, no, this is Asherah. We like her better. She's just a pole. You know, Asherah doesn't demand anything of us. And, and it seems like there was no worship of God going on at all. In, in Gideon's town. And so, all they were doing was worshiping Canaanite gods. But those gods were a temptation to them, probably not to us, right? I've never had this, never woken up in the morning and thought, I really need to go build me a pole to Asherah. That's what I want to do today. Or, you know what my yard is missing? An altar to Baal. I never had that thought. But we have different idols that challenge us that tempt us to worship. The first one, I think the biggest one in our culture, the king of all the false gods of America, is self. Self. Self is the primary god of the Western world. It's that untethered, like relativistic, subjective libertine, I want to do what I want, I need to get what's mine, I, whatever makes me happy is good and right. It's all about me. Right? That's that self-worship. We've taken God off of His throne, taken his crown, taken his glory, built our own throne and said, I'm God and I'm worthy of my worship. That's what self-worship is. But it's more than just arrogance. It's, it's putting all of my glory and my pleasure and my happiness and my comfort as the primary God in my life. Sometimes it is arrogance. Sometimes it is just saying, I'm the best. That's wrong. But sometimes it's more, more subtle than that. We say, yeah, I like God. I, I, I worship God. But... I want to be happy more than I want to worship God. I want to be comfortable more than I want to worship God. Or I want to, I want to be glorified. It's whenever the primary treasure of my life is me and not God. So we see this everywhere, right? The motto of selfism is one you probably know. It's in like half the movies that have ever been made. Follow your heart. Don't follow your heart, you'll die. Right? Your heart leads you to death. Jeremiah tells us that the human heart is 
wicked and deeply deceitful. But we see this running rampant throughout our culture. Not just our culture, right? It's easy to sit here and say, oh man, all those non-Christians are so bad. Aren't we so good? We worship God, but they love, they love themselves. But the truth is, it's coming in to the churches too. But there's this thing that, well, I'll get there in a minute. Even churches that were once sold, excuse me, solid on godliness are setting up false gods of self next to the true God. And we do this in small ways, right? With, sometimes with so-called Christian music that is all about me and how I feel and my happiness and what God can do for me rather than worshiping God for who He is, right? Or sometimes there are preachers and sermons that are just basically nothing to do with God at all or His works or His greatness or His glory and instead they're just all about how great you are or how sinless you are or how God just loves you so much that He had to come and die for you. And it's true, God does love you. But He loves you more than you think. And He didn't come and die because you're so great. He came and died because of His great love for you who is not so great. And you see there's a subtle difference there. But sometimes we've replaced the God of Scripture with a vision of God that is weak and shallow and saccharine sweet, like sweet and low. You ever put sweet and low in your mouth? Don't do that. It's disgusting. But... <laughs> But it sweetens your tea, but it's fake. It's fake. And so we have this saccharine sweet God who just winks at sin. And he has no real plan or much power. He's kind of a genie instead of a, a new age, or excuse me, or like a new age spiritual guide instead of the God who spoke the universe into existence. Or who sits enthroned high above the heavens, whose name is greater than any other name, whose love is mind-blowing in its scope, who works all things together for the good of his people who was so terrifying when he descended on Mount Sinai that the people begged Moses, please don't let God speak to us anymore. He's just too much for us. But that's the God of the Bible. And I'm afraid that I have watered him down. And I'm afraid that we as the big C church, especially in America, we've, we've watered him down. We've made him tame. And that's a version of selfism sneaking into the church. Or sometimes... It looks like a watered-down gospel that's really subtly wrong, but very seriously wrong, that says, like I said, you're so great that God had to get you. But the gospel says, because of our brokenness and our sin, there was nothing that we could do before God. So God sent His Son to save us, to die for our sins, to rescue us from ourselves. Not because we're great, but because He's great. And that's not only lacking to say that we're so awesome God needed us. That's actually blasphemy. And the, the half gospel says nothing about sin or the cross or the holiness of God or His justice or the fact that you and I deserve to die but that God in His great mercy and grace toward us sent His perfect Son in our place. Right? That's the real gospel. So before we move on from this, I'm going to give you some more examples of idols because I really want you to feel bad this morning. Self is the king of a pantheon of gods. Just like Baal was the king of a pantheon of gods. And they look like this. Like one of them is pleasure. Pleasure. Like maybe you say, well, I don't really worship myself, but your whole life is bent on what feels good for me. And sometimes we even spiritualize that and we say, well, God's telling me to do this. And really what that means is this feels good for me, so I'm going to put God's name on it so I can go and do it. 
Or you don't have to look very hard to realize that people have been drawn away by Satan into the worship of like sex or drugs or video games or whatever it might be. And I'm not pointing at you, Brandon, just by the way. (laughs) Whatever it is that is pleasing to us and we want that more than we want God, that's an idol. Or how about success? Power and success. Some people do whatever it takes to get power or, or to succeed in their career. Right? They become a workaholic and say, well, I know that God is important. I just don't have time for Him. I've got to succeed. That's an idol. And here's B. Even good things can become idols if they challenge my devotion to God. Even good things can become idols if they challenge my devotion to God. Well, here's another one. This one's really common. Health and wealth. Right, these two like twin gods that go together. And this one is going nuts. Like This is everywhere. And it's infiltrating the church, and I see this all the time. It's health and wealth. And, and this can be sold in a biblical way that like, one of the trappings of coming to Christ is that He will fully heal you and give you everything you ever want. But Christ is still the, the, the goal and the aim and the prize. But because of Him, you get all these other things. But that's not biblical. It's just not true. Jesus says we're going to suffer with him. And that's not encouraging. Well, it is encouraging to know that Jesus said it. But it's not. It doesn't make us want to get up and jump for joy like, yes, I get to suffer today. No, I don't want that. I don't want to suffer. Who wants to suffer? But we will. And then here's the one that scares me the most is when health and wealth replace Jesus. And it's like Jesus becomes a stepping stone to health and wealth. So I want to be rich and I want to be healthy. Goodness, who doesn't? And so if I come to Christ, then he'll give me those things, and then I can just kind of get rid of him, because that's too hard. And that, that's, that's part of worshiping this false god of self. If money is your god, then God is not. Or if health is your god, God is not, and that would be an idol. And like I said, it's not wrong to be healthy. not wrong to be wealthy. It's not wrong to have power or to be successful. It's not wrong to have pleasure, right? God gives us all good things to enjoy, and yet they only work right when He's the King, not ourselves. All right. Or there's some other false gods. Let's go through a few more, in case you don't feel bad yet. Here's some others. These are outside of self. I'll go through these quickly, like family. Family is a great gift from God, but your family can become an idol for you. If you love your family more than you love God, but if you do whatever your wife says... Regardless of what is right, that's an idol. Or if you do whatever your husband says, that's an idol. Or if you would do anything for your kids, including sin, they might be an idol for you. Or if you prioritize your family time over time with the Lord, that might be an idol. But whatever gets in the way of my devotion to God is an idol. Or country, right, country. And I want to be careful how I say this one, because I love America. I don't love it the most. Right? Some, some Christians seem to love America more than Jesus, and that scares me. Some people would never join a church or worship with God's people on Sunday, but if the church doesn't fly an American flag, you're going to get a letter. Right? Or they're more willing to lay down their life for their country, but they're not willing to die for Jesus. Or they're proudly singing the national anthem at the baseball game, and they get mad when somebody would kneel, but they never sing in church. That's a disordering of things. Or how about sports? 
Some people love their football team or their basketball team or their whatever team more than Jesus. I've seen people, I've seen men who will paint their entire bodies head to toe and they'll scream their voice hoarse for their football team. But they won't share their faith because it might offend somebody. Hey, that might be an idol. Or some people only make it to church once a month, but they never miss a football game. And if I'm talking to you there, I love you. That's why I'm saying this. I don't want you to think I'm judging you as some perfect guy, because I've had idols. Goodness gracious, I've worshipped at unholy altars. I've struggled with idolatry in my own life. We all have. Every single one of us. That, like I said, Calvin says, and I think he's dead on, the human heart is a factory of idols. They just come out of us. But let's be honest with ourselves. Search your heart. Ask the Lord to search your heart, to show you any idols you might be holding on to. I think if we're not careful, we can think of idolatry as like a little sin. Right? It's not murder, it's not adultery, it's just, just a little idol. I still love God, I just have another God too. But it's actually the primary sin. I really think idolatry is the primary sin. And the Bible says that it deserves and demands the wrath of God, like we read in Romans 1. But 18, verse 18 of Romans 1 says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And then it goes on to say that what they did in their unrighteousness was make idols. That was the first thing. Idolatry will ruin your soul and your life. And it will make you an enemy of God. And God will destroy his enemies. Now, I'm not here to condemn you this morning, but to offer you hope. Like if we just said, have a great week, right? No. I want to give you hope. Because although you and I deserve the wrath of God, God, in his love for us, his unbelievable love toward us blasphemers and idolaters, he sent his son to die for us. He gave us salvation through Jesus Christ. He wants to spare you this morning. He sent Jesus to die so we could live. And on the cross, Jesus paid for every past, present, and future idolatry so that we could be called the righteousness of God. So this morning, let today be the day that you tear down your idols and run to Jesus. If I gave you something in that list or something's coming to your mind now and you're thinking, this is an idol, don't let it linger in your life. Tear it down and offer it on the altar to Jesus Christ, because He will save you. God's coming to judge, right? He's the judge. And if you're an idolater, your false gods cannot save you from the wrath of God. But Jesus can, and He wants to. But you have to come to Him. Tear down your idols, bring them to the cross. Or come to Jesus and say, I have idols and I can't tear them down, I need your help. And Jesus will go get out the chainsaw, and He'll say, let's go. Because He loves you that much, that He doesn't want to leave you in your idolatries. You may think there's joy to be found in an idol, but there's not. Right? In sex or power or family or country or yourself, they're not going to last you. That joy is going to be temporary. And it might be fun for a little while, but all you'll find there is death if that is your God. Because these things are good blessings from God, but they are puny gods. All right. So here's the next thing. I'll leave you alone on that one. Number two. We see this also from the story in Gideon. When we obey God, we should expect the world to hate us. When we obey God, we should expect the world to hate us. 
And right now you're thinking, who is this guy and why did Brandon invite him to my church? He's telling me that people are going to hate me for Jesus. But Jesus said the same thing. But the men of the town were very disappointed with Gideon. It says he was afraid of them because he knew they were not going to be pleased. When they woke up and found that the Asherah was cut down and the, the, the altar to Baal was torn down, he was like, these guys are not going to like me for this. But I don't think he expected that they were going to come to his house and say to his dad, bring out your son so we can kill him. We're done with him. Because these were probably like his friends. And maybe like his friend's dad's. And they were coming to say, you know, we, we grew up with Gideon. He's been a buddy of ours. But tonight he crossed the line. He tore down the idols. We've got to kill him. Gideon didn't die. Right? His dad talked him down. But his life was never the same after that. Those were his friends, like I said. They tore down their idols. And Jesus said the same thing is going to happen to us. John fifteen eighteen through 20. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they'll also keep yours. So being hated by the world is baked in to following Jesus. It's part of it. But Christ didn't leave his disciples or us with only the promise that we would be hated. Later on, in, in like a chapter later, John sixteen thirty three, he says this, I have said all these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. And here's the good part. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus promises us that despite the fact, and it is a fact, that we will be hated by the world. There's more than just the world. There's more than just this life. There is an eternal life waiting for us with Him. But when we tear down the world's idols, we might get a new name like Gideon got. And here's a cool piece of trivia. Gideon's name means hacker or hewer, the one who cuts down. And they gave him a new name and said, let Baal contend against him. They call him Jerubbabel. In other words, uh, Gideon, Baal's coming for you. You're marked by this. The false god, the god, well, the god that we worship, Baal, he's going to come and destroy you for what you've done. And when we tear down the world's idols, we'll probably get a new name too. And maybe you've been given one of these names already. Bigot, or homophobe, or idiot, or fool, or prude, or hater, or mean. Gideon was called Jerubbabel, but like I said, it wasn't a compliment. He cursed him. But Gideon had met the Almighty God, and he knew, Baal can't touch me, because I am is with me. And he could say with the psalmist in Psalm 118, 6-7, The Lord is on my side, I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. But the world is sometimes not content to demean and defame us. Like I said, they went to Gideon and said, bring him out, we're going to kill him. And so here's the question you have to ask yourself this morning. And this is not an easy question to answer, but it's one you have to settle in your mind if you're going to follow the crucified king. And that's this, am I ready to die for Jesus? We were saying this morning, 
I'll follow you anywhere you go, whatever it costs me. Am I ready to die for Jesus? Right? In America, we've enjoyed like this, this moment of religious freedom. And we've had a lot of it, and it's been awesome. But maybe you feel it, that that is kind of changing. Right? That what used to be looked up to, our Christianity, is now being looked down on. And probably not tomorrow or next year or even ten years from now, but it may be coming when you're going to be asked to either reject Christ or give Him your life. But that shouldn't surprise us like we already read what Jesus said. Jesus said in Matthew 10, 38 and 39, if you don't take up your cross and follow Me, you're not worthy of Me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for My sake will find it. Jesus' call has always been a call to come and die. To trade this world for a better one. We trade the temporary joy of sin here for eternal joy with Christ. And we trade friendship with the world for friendship with God because He's way better. And we trade riches in this life for riches in the next because we will be rich with Him. But sometimes we trade our lives for eternal life. So I want to close with one last story and this will be quick and then we'll be done. There's a guy named John Lambert. And he was a, a Protestant martyr, really. I mean, he was a martyr in England. And he was burned at the stake in 1538 because he rejected basically the teachings of the Catholic Church that the body and the blood become the, or excuse me, the bread and the wine of communion become the body and blood of Christ and that they feed you in a literal sense with the actual body and blood of Christ. Because he realized, if we're going to accept this, we also have to accept their whole system of salvation by works. And he said, I can't go back to that. Because God has saved us by grace, not by works. And so they came to him and said, John, we're going to give you two options. You can either recant or we're going to kill you. And he said, I can't do that. So, November 22nd, on a cold winter morning in London... They tied him to a stake and they lit him on fire. And as he was being burned alive, he raised his hands in the air and he said, None but Christ! None but Christ! And then he died. And may God grant us the same courage and the same steadfastness and the same devotion to the only one who's worthy of our praise. That no matter what comes in this life, no matter what idols present themselves, we will be able to say, none but Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for Your Word, for Your love, for the cross. We thank You that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Lord, for, for anyone who is here this morning, who doesn't know You, or who's not sure about you or about Jesus, or who's really offended by what I may have said, would I ask that you would work on their hearts by your word, that they would see the truth of this message, that their idols will kill them, and that following Jesus might do the same, but that you are not just the one who's worthy of our worship, but the one who gives all good things to us to enjoy, who promises us, if we come to you in repentance and faith, that you will give us eternal life with you forever. But for my brothers and sisters here who are trusting Jesus, who are following after him, I ask that you would help them as well to tear down the idols that may crop up in their lives, 
that they would know that to live in this world is to be constantly battling idolatry. And Lord, that you would give us the courage to stand firm, no matter what may come, to stand firm in the knowledge of the truth that you are God alone and that there is no one like you. Lord, we love you and we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Our desire this week is to love God by...